Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Books podcast, our series of conversations with scholars with books in the field. Uh, we're joined today by Hibu Buakar of Columbia University to talk about her book, For the War Yet to Come, Planning Beirut's Frontiers, which was published by Stanford University Press. Uh, Hibu, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you uh, for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be part of uh, this podcast. Thank you for... Um, I'm excited for our conversation. <laughs> so, so tell, tell us a little bit about the book. Um, why did you decide to write it? And what do you think the main contribution of the book uh, is going to be? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, the, books, the book started like, the work for the book started uh, 15 years ago. I didn't know <laughs> at the time what, where it's gonna go, but uh, I was fascinated initially with uh, um, where I where I lived after the war with my family, I was in, uh, I was fascinated at some point by this large scale mass housing that weren't familiar to the Lebanese, to the Beirut peripheries geography uh, before, and so I became curious about who's living there, who's developing it, well, what's going on, and um, this is how it started. When I was doing my masters, um, I this is I thought this. It's gonna be a simple question. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna, this is like in the planning program. I'm just gonna go figure out who's living there, why they are vacant and just, um, just understand like a housing market question and a vacancy question. Uh, and then when I, when I started doing field research there, I realized after talking to people that there is a, there is a story about war and war displacement. Many of the families who, ha who I managed to speak with in these compounds at the time, uh, were uh, displaced during the civil war and from mostly South Lebanon. And then they, they um, quote unquote, squatted around the Green Line, which was common uh, at some point during the war, where, when the war moved, when the civil war moved from um, downtown Beirut to other places, many of the buildings became empty. And then so people squatted in them during the war. And so they stayed there for many, many years, uh, some 20 years. Um, and um, eventually that's when I met them in these commands. Like I realized that they were war displaced, they were squatted, they were waiting for compensation. And that's why many of the apartments were vacant because many of the families have not received yet the post-war, uh, the compensation that at the time Hariri government promised. And so they had to stay in their squ squatted home waiting for a compensation before they moved. But at the same time, they weren't, um, they weren't, they were, like whenever they get an eviction notice, they had to move within 24 hours or something like that. So they had secured these apartments. And then when I start digging deeper, how did they get to the funds and stuff? This is when I start realizing the role for the religious political organizations uh, of how they are interfering in the land market and the, and the prices of land. And then I start realizing uh, the conflict that was going on in Sahra Shwaifit, particularly that area between um, uh, on one side, the Shia, like mostly considered uh, Shia religious political organization, in this case Hezbollah and Harakat Amal, and the municipality that at the time was led by mostly progressive socialist party, the Druze um, um, uh, um, political party. So they were the municipality was affiliated to that party at the time. And so I start looking at the planning and how uh, these residential complexes ended up a mushrooming in an agriculture area, but also next to industries. And eventually like a whole world starts opening to me about um, how war has shaped the, how war displacement have shaped the housing market, the religious political organizations who are fighting over territory after the war uh, and how planning is a tool in that conflict, a tool sometimes of negotiation and sometimes of contestation. 
Um, so, 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 the so the title of the book then, For the War Yet to Come, mm -hmm. what, what does this mean? Um, so the, the, it's, not about, um, it's not about whether the war is going to come or not. It's about how most of the, how people, including my family, um, have lived in Beirut always with an expectation of some future uh, war that's going to come. So uh, for the war yet to come ends up being like this expectation of war that is either going to be like an uh, Arab-Israeli war, uh, it's going to be a sectarian war, a regional, whatever it is, uh, ends up shaping how people make decisions about where they live, religious political organizations end up using this idea to like keep People uh, in strongholds, they intervene in the, in the housing market within militarization, paramilitarization in their head about access to, for example, airports or to the, to the um, waterfront, et cetera. So, um, when I, I mean, although I said it started like that, eventually I realized when I was putting everything in, in a book that it was also a personal project. As a person who grew up in the Civil War and was personally displaced six times, I think I was haunted by the idea, what does it mean to live in a place that's all we're always expecting something um, disastrous to happen in the future and i saw it like when like where, when family members want to buy an apartment no no don't buy there what if a war ends up happening and then we can't reach you you are far from the because my family um, is uh, con like consider themselves Druze, so um, so like no don't go far recently when my brother wanted to get an apartment, no, this area, like how we're gonna reach you if there is a war. So it is something that is in everyday discourses. And suddenly I, suddenly it became clear to me that behind dinner parties, like they're always talking, why did the, like for our building, like, oh, did you see these new people who bought apartments in our building? Do you think they're Iranians? Like what's gonna happen? Is this like gonna be a sniper location? And of course this is all uh, became much more, um, Open in the public uh, after uh, May 2008, the the events that reminded people of the civil war, and that happened in these neighborhoods that I was already researching, and um, yeah, and so this is where the war yet comes. So it's not about necessarily the the the. It's not I'm saying that the war is water war is going to come, but I'm just looking at how this expectation of war ends up shaping um, uh, everyday life and negotiations over over territories. And there's, there's, there's fascinating details in there. Like one that what stuck out at me is how people became so upset when, or they, they noticed the difference between uh, buildings that were, that were put up with reinforced concrete because that suggested uh, a different strategic logic than those that didn't. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, eventually, uh, eventually the, um, um, from, from, through my, like, through my interviews, I, reali I realized that housing and construction material uh, has been uh, used as a tool of um, like threat or, or preparing for war uh, even early on after quote unquote the end of the war. So you, uh, the developers were telling me about how uh, in their contestation in, 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 um, in Al Hadas, which is next to one of my sites, Haimadi, they threatened that they're going to build like with reinforced concrete across the street and across the street is basically a, a, a short hand or for like the Christian side and saying we're gonna build with reinforced concrete because like that means that we are gonna take that geography. It's, and in architecture speak, it's very hard to destroy reinforced concrete, whereas it's very easy to destroy um, um, the regular concrete blocks, like the cheap um, hollow concrete blocks that people use and reinforced concrete is much more durable. Um, and so this, is a, this was a architecture speak of saying like that the war 
that we, we will continue be, to be prepared for war and this change is going to be reinforced concrete, i.e. Uh, finite, and if you're going to challenge it, uh, it will be, uh, uh, it, there will be war. And so I start, like being a, a, a trained as an architect and then uh, more as a planner, I, I thought, like, this is not what I was learning in planning school, right? I was walking in the halls of MIT and after that Berkeley telling you how the future, you plan for a better future, you plan for like a conservation of resources, you plan for parks, you plan for this. And, and this is not how the conversation goes around architecture and planning in many, in many ways, especially in Beirut's peripheries where are, they are contested because of the pressure of urbanization. Um, and, and so I started becoming fascinated on how then rather than assume what planning does, how about we study what they're doing? And so part of the research became studying how planning is unfolding in space and time and how people act, quote unquote, the municipal experts or municipal officers or people who are involved end up uh, use planning as a tool of conflict and sometimes negotiation within this expected future of war. Um, so, um, so yeah, so this is, it becomes like, it, it, like planning, zoning, architecture, materials, etc. they all become, um, um, idioms used to think about geographies of expected conflict. Now, running through the, the, the entire book, uh, you use different language in different places, but it's a common theme, this notion that, that the land has religion or of sectarian geographies. Explain what you mean by that. Uh, I mean, one of the concepts that was, was became interesting to me and um, I talk like the, the, what you like you mentioned land has religion is one of the things that I, I realized is that in these interviews and like ethnographies even like in in like my life there as I said this 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 book is a is a personal project as much as it is a political project um, I started realizing that people talk about land like hey, uh, this land is Christian this land is Muslim like oh Christians or this land is Christian Muslims are taking it over or um, and I was like it was, it was interesting to me because uh, if you want to take a theoretical lens, I was like, people don't talk about when they think about land. Oh, this is Christian land, you know, like thinking about, for example, New York or other places in the world. And the fact that people, land is talked about in a, Christian, in, a, in a religious terminology was very interesting to me. And then when you map religion and sectarianism to land, then any anyone who's trying to just secure housing becomes like, oh, what is your religion? Oh, that you're taking over, you're Islamizing. And then you go from Islamizing, for example, the neighborhood to Islamizing the Middle East, and then it's against the minorities. I mean, the Druze are minorities, the Christians are minorities. And so it becomes like, it goes from one apartment or building block to become on TV, Islamization of Lebanon, Islamization of the Middle East. And so I got fascinated by the idea how people, uh, without even blinking assign religion to land. And I only saw that, um, I've seen that talking mostly about in, the, in Palestine, that like mm -hmm. this is Jewish land. And maybe a little bit I read about it in the Bosnian conflict, but it's not, uh, that's why I got fascinated by it. It's just, I was like, oh, this is not how land usually considered. And um, I think we need to think about when people start assigning, um, I mean, in, in Lebanon, it's Christian and Muslim, but in other places, this is white land, this is black land if you're talking about racialism or if you're talking in India, this is Muslim, this is Hindu, you know, mm -hmm. who can live there? And so on the one hand, you have a market logic, but on, but on the other hand, you have this like sectarian logic. Yes. And somehow religious political organizations, I mean, some of them were celebrated like Hezbollah. I mean, the most uh, uh, famous is Hezbollah of the actors. I, I look at how they, how they use the housing market. Um, um, 
they 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 were celebrated after the war that like like they were anti like they are uh, they are un uh, resistance under uh, against Israel but also they're anti-imperial they're anti-colonial they operate and assume to operate outside capitalist logics etc and this is the this research shows that that's not that's not true actually all of them including Hezbollah participate in a market logic where they try to make profit but at the same time uh, uh, providing housing um, affordable housing for people who are of their uh, who they think they will vote for them or support them, so they keep their support base. And so they they employ like so. Some of the developers that I web many it's very difficult to interview developers in Lebanon because housing developers or real estate developers uh, because many most of them have to be affiliated in some way, especially in these areas with uh, political parties. But I managed to interview a few of them, and they will not tell you who their partners are because mm -hmm. um, like like you know probably it's some. Um, political figure or like you know so but but many of them talk about oh yeah we gave uh, for example 13 percent of our housing um, like these uh, AA the developers of the AA complex I talk about like they gave 13 percent of their housing to an NGO affiliated with Hezbollah you have other um, other um, um, developers who are more affiliated with Harakit Amal so you start you start um, um, seeing um, seeing this uh, how this geography uh, how this, uh, how the religious political organization become major actors, and this is interesting from from uh, from uh, from a theoretical conceptual perspective for our fields, because for example, from when you study um, when you study geography or urban studies, urban planners usually like there is a binary between private and public actors, and so you either you either are a private developer and the development is is private, or you you're a, a a public entity and then the things you're acting on are for the public interest, public spaces, public housing, etc. And I think in Lebanon, it's very important to think that to, to um, what, what this shows that this binary does not stand because these actors are simultaneously the government. So after Ta'if, they are all part of the government, like Harakat Amal, Hezbollah, PSP, uh, Sunni Future Movement, they all, uh, the Christian parties, they all formulate the government, they also operate outside it. Um, and then I think this is why it's very difficult to talk about the state in a generic team in Lebanon without understanding that these, guys, that these entities formulate this, perform the state, but also they are the actors that are outside the state looking for their own interests as, uh, as um, religious political organizations, as sometimes paramilitary organizations, as through, and through their social services for, for the poor who vote for them. So it's hard to know where the state begins and ends. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, I, I mean, I was trying to conceptualize it and you, you, you feel like it's just, it's, they operate as this like constellations of actors. Some of them are in the government and some of them are outside it, but they operate, yeah, they cross cuts between, so it's not clear when they act, who's acting. <laughs> is the government, right. is it the political part? It's, it's so, yeah, so um, I'm, I'm, uh, I mean, there's a, there are so many descriptions for the state in Lebanon, like failed state, weak state, et cetera. But from my research, when you studied ethnography, ethnographically, I think, I don't use the word state in my book, but I, I start, discuss about how this is, this is how these guys are the state and outside the state. And so we need to start understanding then what does it mean when they intervene in the geographies and what is, what is the spaces that they're creating through this territorial contestation. Yeah, and so 
in the in the, the the strategic part of this, it was very interesting. The descriptions that you had of I think you called it the um, the, the chess and domino logic. Yes. Where you have where you were, they make strategic purchases, and then all of a sudden you see this cascade of people from the other sect or the other religion um, wanting to sell quickly to get out. Um, walk us through that a little bit. This the combination of both market logic and um, sectarian logic. Um. Yeah, I mean, this is even like a word that was uh, um, like the domino effect is something that the people even used themselves. And, and, and I realized eventually like how um, what they're thinking about. So um, it, it operates in, in, in most in all three neighborhoods in different ways. I talk about it uh, specifically in, in Haimadi and Sahra Shwayfit. And basically what happens is, is the, the real estate developer or uh, need, need to like get in the get in the housing market. So this is like, especially if they're from a different sectarian group in a contested area like this area around Beirut. Um, and so um, they, 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 they want to put their foot in. And usually this is when it happens, is that when, when one of these housing complexes start developing and people start realizing that people of a different sectarian group were moving in. Again, I'm talking specifically about these peripheries because they are under a lot of uh, pressure from urbanization from different sites that are associated with different groups. And so when the developer, when, when people start seeing like a building or there's a rumors, rumors are big in producing these geographies that like a, oh, quote unquote Shia developer bought this land then, and you see like mass housing being constructed, they, they will just like, oh, we don't want to be their neighbors. You know, this is not the BIA. They use a lot the, uh, the word of BIA environment to, to, without naming it to describe something that's not dif that's different from them, like basically the construction of another. So this is not our BIA, we need to get out. So they start selling the land and then one project after the other and then the neighbors sell the land. And- uh, A little bit more like, about this concept of BIA. It's very interesting the way you discuss this. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I mean, BIA is a word that's always used in Lebanon, like on TV and stuff. I never thought about it before one day I was, in one day, it was mentioned to me while I was doing field research like three times. And I was like, what is this about BIA that makes it like uh, a concept that it seems people know what they're talking about, but I, mm -hmm. I don't know exactly if, if it's true. And then I start asking, so what do you mean? Like, what is BIA to you? And they're like, oh, like they're not clean. They have six children. They don't go to school. And um, I realized eventually how, uh, how, expansive this word of BS. So then even the political parties use it against each other. So this is like Biat al-Muqawama. So it's basically the environment supporting the resistance. And then at that time, when I was doing research, there was a lot of uh, finding um, outing, quote unquote, Israeli spies in the, in the area. And so they're like, and this is the Biat al-Jawasis al 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 So basically the environment that facilitates treason and I was like, this is a, this is like a natural, like natural, it's used, it's used as a naturalized term, but also, but, but we have to think about it as a politically constructed and then start, people start using it without the need to saying exactly what it is. And it is the way in which you talk about the construction of an other without saying it. Um, yeah. And so I talk about this construction of B and how everyone using, using it to, uh, to construct the other as a, as a, uh, not not national enough or not religious enough or uh, not uh, committed to the resistance of the state of Israel enough. Uh, and then people use it everyday life to, to say that they don't want to live with these other people because of a different BIA. 
Um, and it became like, uh, yeah, so I, I, I thought when I was reflecting on that, I was like, let me, let me reflect on that world and how um, the natural is political. And this is a word that is like environment, it's, it's, it's assumed to be natural, but then how this, con it's a constructed idea of, of the environment that then people uh, think about how where they're gonna live, uh, how they're gonna, whether they sell the land or not, etc. It's like our uh, way of life, that sort of thing. Yeah, and then because it is a natural, like a word that describes a natural situation, then people don't feel like you, they need to question it because it's just like feels like this language that everyone thinks they know what they're talking about. But what they're basically doing is just uh, construction, constructing lines of difference and then thinking about how, they, how to go about their everyday lives in these geographies. Um, but also in response to your uh, in response to your question about about um, about real estate deals, I mean, I was I was doing research there as I said since two thousand four, and two thousand eight happened, uh, which is which was um, deadly in these areas. There were like really major uh, battles within these two days uh, that were sectarian battles basically, um, and so many of the many of the real estate uh, transactions that happened before. Uh, were described to me initially when I was doing research, even though I knew there was something going on about that, like the ghost of war was always there. Uh, they were always described to me as like, oh yeah, this is market. We're like, why are you thinking there's more to it than that? Like, um, uh, like especially like the brokers, real estate brokers, municipal officers who have a hand in what happened and like in these transactions. But immediately after 2008, these same market transactions that were considered like natural market transactions, nothing to them, were immediately ascribed as like a sectarian in sectarian terms and Islamization and a, like a taking over the area like that invasion etc uh, and it just like uh, the meaning of these transactions changed over time and eventually people started saying oh we we woke up and so like they took our land without us knowing we were just like selling our land because we didn't have any other means to to live and now look, they, they took it over, et cetera. For example, in Sahra Shwaite. It, it just gets re-encoded in, uh, in a different way. Exactly. Uh, although many of the housing complexes that started, not the big ones, like the small, um, the small scale, like one building, two buildings, started as partnerships between the Druze landowners from Shwaifit and the Shia developers. And then eventually these projects are the project were also inscribed as this, um, uh, oh, they took over the area through the market without us knowing. Uh, we didn't know that this is what's going to happen um, while they were preparing for for future for taking us taking over and a future world war, etc. But we didn't know that at the time. So it got it got a new different. These market transactions got a different kind of interpretation and life uh, eventually. I want to go back to uh, something you said right at the very beginning of our conversation when we, you were talking about the ruins and why some of them get um, get uh, preserved and others get developed. And you have this, this concept in one of your chapters about the doubleness of ruins mm -hmm. and the role that they play in this urban geography. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, I mean... Um when I when I was uh, doing this research, I told you about when I was like still early on, like I was a master's student. Uh, when I was doing uh, the research in this big mushrooming housing complexes and realizing people were, were displaced, um, and I uh, as I said, many of the uh, uh, apartments were bought but empty. So I started asking the families where uh, 
where did they come from? And many of them pointed me to the area of Haimadi Maram Khayel. So I ended up going there um, and trying to see uh, who, who's living there and interviewing people at the time. They were still squatting in, in building in ruins. So what people did, as I said, is um, at some point when the, um, and during the, after the two year war that was happening in downtown Beirut, the war moved to other areas. And I mean, the famous green line area uh, was basically squatted by families who did not have any other shelter and who were coming from other areas. And so they squatted in these buildings and they spent the entire war in these buildings. They made families there. They, um, so this was life there for like 15, 20 years, basically. And at some point, um, the post-war, we can describe it, neoliberal government of Lebanon decided they're just going to wish away the display, war displacement problem by just giving people money and tell them to just go home, back home. And for them, for many of these people, home was already now Beirut. Many of these people were born there. They're already within their 20s by the time, like they told them to go back home to their villages. So they didn't want to go home. Uh, home is Beirut. And so this is where they start buying into these um, 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 uh, housing complexes on the peripheries in more affordable areas like Sahra Shwifit. Uh, a network of these developers that were building in areas like Sahra Shwifit had offices in the war displaced areas. So I went to like, uh, their offices in these areas to ask um, to ask who they're selling to, and they definitely were targeting specific communities of the world displaced to make to channel them, which I call channeled market, from where, where they were squatting to new areas like Sahra Shwaifit. Um, anyways, so what was what was interesting to me um, afterwards is that as I start, I kept going back to the to the to the neighborhood over the years is that some buildings. Um, Eventually, like the, it was empty from the squatters, but some buildings stayed as ruins. Um, just a note to say that many of the families who squatted built houses inside ruined buildings. So they constructed makeshift shelters inside ruined buildings. So these ruined buildings, some of them stood empty and some of them were just destroyed and replaced by fancy apartments. And my question was like, what, how did it happen? Like why, why we, still, we still see civil war, war ruins in a very uh, intense, real estate market. And when I start asking, I, I start hearing about the church, the church bought them, the church um, is, in, is uh, negotiating them. And, and then um, I, what I learned is that the, the church on one end um, and the real estate developers who are affiliated specifically with Hezbollah on the other hand are basically fighting over, over the land of the ruins. It's not about the ruins. It's not about keeping the ruins as like a, as a, a um, memorial, as a reminder of the civil war, but more about the value of the land that the ruins uh, um, stand on. Um, and so that the the church decided to like also start like buying real estate, buying real estate in the area, so that the the Shia developers don't buy it in this fighting Islamization of the area, I guess. Um, and, um, and then what they ended up doing is they ended up like basically tracing each other around the world. Like they went and because many of the land there was by people who immigrated during the war, civil war from Lebanon. So they were basically tracking down people in like Sao Paulo and Washington DC. I talked to a couple in Sydney, Australia, trying to convince them to sell the land. And, um, if the, if the church was able to convince the people to, sell them the land at, usually at a lower price than the developers to keep the land Christian, uh, then most of likely the ruins stayed there because the, the church did not have money to do anything with these buildings for the most part, except either destroy them or keep them as is. Um, 
if the developer is convinced to buy the land, then they will, you will see like fancy, because this area is quite close to Beirut, um, you see fancy new buildings. And so for it's still like that for the most part. It's this like very uncanny geography of, of ruins that's still standing and and new buildings that overlook them and like an old life and a new life uh, that are that clash uh, in, in, in that area. And so the doubleness of ruins is basically how I look at how these ruins that stayed are not only a result of previous conflict, the civil war where in which they were affected, uh, but they are also an indicators of a new geography of conflict that's unfolding through real estate planning and, and housing development that when they stay, it's an indication that the church was able to buy the land. And when they're gone, it's an indication that the real estate developers who are Shia, mostly affiliated to Hezbollah, were able to buy the land to develop it. Um, and of course, the discourse of who sold the land and whether the land is, became, is, was Christian and now not is also a big in that, in that geography. Uh, at, many, at some point, I was able to interview um, one, uh, one of the, the guys who, who I don't know exactly what his, uh, I don't remember exactly what his role in the church is, but he's had one, had one, he is, he was the head of one of the biggest um, uh, universities in Lebanon that are considered to be affiliated with the, with the church. And he was like saying, you know, none of our people, we're buying this land, but none our, of our people want to live there. So can you and your students, architecture students help me uh, find ideas to develop this land and maybe like, for example, in a mall, and then we can generate money by selling to our Shia neighbors, but then building housing for our uh, newly married uh, Christian couples somewhere else or something like that. Oh, it's so interesting. Um, I have so many more questions I want to ask, but I think we're just about out of time. Yeah. So um, I guess all, all I would say is that uh, I absolutely love this book and I hope everybody reads it. Um, we've been Thank speaking you. with uh, Hibu Boakar of Columbia University about this wonderful book, uh, For the War Yet to Come, Planning Beirut's Frontiers. Uh, Hibu, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Mark. This was, this was wonderful. My pleasure.